Our scripture reading today will be from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 1 through 30. Stand with me with the further reading of God's word, please, if you're able. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who has come, who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare you your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a, dir- a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, there would have been repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find the rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thank you. I have the great privilege of introducing our speaker today uh, to kick off our Lottie Moon season. Uh, we've invited Dr. Keith Idle to come and speak for us and to share with us about missions and about Lottie Moon and uh, things of that nature. And um, 
uh, to get to know them a little bit, he and his wife Glenda, sitting right behind him, uh, lived and worked as career missionaries in Cameroon, West Africa, before joining the faculty of the Criswell College in 1985. His journey later, later took him on to join the faculty of, of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1992. And since 2005, he has served as the dean of the Roy Fish School of Evangelism and Missions at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So let's invite Dr. Idle to come and, and share the word with us today. Be here. I hope you are this morning, and I hope especially that you will after the message. Be glad you came. Uh, turn with me, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 24. And as we're getting ready, I'd like to say thank you to Pastor Justin and also to the church as a whole for the opportunity to come and be with you this morning and to share in this uh, opportunity to give our, of ourselves and of our substance to the cause of global. I did. It's got a green light. Yeah. Want me to turn it off and back on? Is it working? I can stick close to this one. <laughs> oh, yeah, there it is. Sir? I don't think so. I can just talk into this one. Yeah, I remember a day when we didn't have microphones. <laughs> my, having said that, my wife and I pastored. Uh, I pastored. She and I worked together, though, in the church um, in Kyle, Texas, just south of Austin. And walking in here and seeing your ceiling tiles and the six... Um, uh, fans, uh, though these look like newer, much newer fans, um, reminded us of that auditorium, uh, but they didn't have air conditioning. Looks like you do. <laughs> so, and a big gas heater in the floor for us all in the winter. Uh, and we had a we had an infidel next door to the church. We had to have windows open summer, and he insisted on harvesting his wheat right while I was preaching. And I had to learn, I almost felt like an African-American pastor because I had to learn to talk in between the cycles of the combine as he came around. And he'd blow chaff up in our windows. So anyway, we worked around it, and God has blessed that church, and it's gone on through the years. All right, Matthew 24, and we'll be looking specifically at verse 14 this morning. And as we open, let me share with you uh, briefly a uh, story about the journey of one of our current students at Southwestern Seminary. His name is Cyprian. That's the name he chose for himself, and the reason he chose that one is that was one of the ancient church fathers who actually was persecuted as well. Well, Cyprian uh, was born with very, very severe handicaps. Both his hands are grown together, the fingers, so that it looks like lobster claws. And uh, both of his feet were so severely um, um, 
club-footed that he could hardly walk. He had to crawl all over as a young person. But that was part of the problem. His family saw him and realized that they needed to have a witch doctor come and determine what he is because they didn't think he was a human. And so, sure enough, the witch doctor declared that he was not only an animal, but that as he grew older, he would become a very violent animal and aggressive and would kill people. So, at a certain point, he had to try to escape the village. They didn't even name him. They referred to him as that which has no name and they didn't know what he was and were afraid of him. So as he was able to make his way to the capital of the country where he lived, which is Rwanda in Central Africa, uh, he was living on the street. And many of you may recall that in the mid-1990s, uh, there was a tragedy in Rwanda where nearly a million people were killed uh, warring between two tribal groups. Well, he, he didn't know what tribe he was. He was an animal, so they didn't dignify him with the status of a tribal member. So one tribe, the Hutus, would confront him on the street. They had their machetes to kill people, and he couldn't convince them that he was not a a Tutsi, Hutu and the Tutsis were the two tribes. And the Tutsis uh, were their dreaded enemies. So between both tribes, not knowing what he was, eventually he was beaten severely and they took the machete to his right leg and today he has a prosthesis on that leg. Well, there he laid in the hospital in the aftermath of that and a missionary came, and she began to pray for him. He was angry with God, so angry because everyone told him God made him like that. And he didn't like being like that. And so um, she kept coming to pray, though he would offend her and try to run her off. And finally, she said something to him that opened his heart slightly, she said, you know why I continue to pray for you? He says, I tell you not to. I wish you would just leave. And she said, but I pray for you because you pray for people, not animals. Well, that's the first time anyone had ever viewed him that way. So he began to listen and began to understand and soon he became a believer. And not only did he become a believer, but he became a very motivated and vibrant believer. So he became overwhelmed with conviction that people needed the gospel. And he began to speak the gospel to people everywhere that he went. People began to tell him, you really need to get to a country where you can be free and can openly speak these things without danger. 
Well, the nearest place that he could seek to process through as a refugee was just outside Tel Aviv in Israel. Now, I know that our geography awareness is limited these days, but if you sometime look at a map uh, of where Rwanda is, it's quite a journey north. He had no other way but to walk. So he set out walking to Israel. It took him over a year to get there, and he would go village to village to village, and as he came to a village, he, it was even more of a blessing when it was market day, he'd go to the middle of the town, and he would preach the gospel. So they would arrest him, and there was a logic in his uh, uh, technique. He could eat in a prison, and while there, the others got to hear as well, and he had a captive audience, so to speak. And uh, so he would journey on until they got so perturbed with him, they'd just take him to the edge of town and send him on his way. And it was okay going through most of these, many of these countries, but when he got into Sudan, uh, these are Muslim villages in northern Sudan and it became a little bit more critical. When he got into Egypt, he said that he didn't like being in Egypt because the Egyptians would just shoot at him, and uh, he couldn't run very fast, and so he would just drop to the ground, and they'd stop shooting. And then he walked across the Sinai and up through the Gaza Strip, and he finally arrived in Tel Aviv and found the UN Refugee Processing Center there took him five years to gain refugee status. And uh, while he was there, just in the same little town, Petatikva, just on the outskirts of Tel Aviv, uh, is one of the entities funded by our Lottie Moon Christmas offering each year, and it's called the Baptist Village. And that's his first encounter with Southern Baptist missionaries and his first awareness of what it was like to be a Baptist and what it meant. And eventually they put him in contact with a church in Fort Worth that has come alongside as a sponsor to his refugee status. And so now he is living um, on our campus and has begun English studies so he can prepare for the GED. He's never been to school and then from there can enroll in a bachelor's degree program with us. Amen. What a circumventing way to arrive at seminary. I wish all the students were that diligent uh, to come to seminary. But I, as we were singing one of the earlier songs, I thought about that. Most of his life, he hasn't had a roof over his head. Most of his life, he's had no place safe to sleep. Most of his life, he's had to scrounge for food, whatever. He, they thought he was a dog, they'd throw him scraps. And then he didn't have, doesn't have today, two feet to put shoes on. And the one foot he's got is still so club-footed he can't wear shoes like we do. And yet, he's, God's blessed him with a smile that literally goes from ear to ear. He is one of the most joy-filled 
people you'd ever want to meet. I told my wife, if I ever have a bad day, remind me <laughs> of Cyprian's circumstances. Because, folks, the question is, without a roof, without food, without shoes, could we still praise him? And indeed, Cyprian does. Thank you for giving to the Lottie Moon offering because it touched his life. Well, that raises the question, what could motivate somebody to be that compelled to share the gospel? And Brother Justin will identify with this. We have scheduled evangelistic classes that are requiring practicums where people go out and share the gospel in the community or through their church ministry, whichever way works uh, well for them. And two weeks before school started this semester, Cyprian hobbled his way into my office and he said, Dr. Idle, am I too late? I said, what do you mean, Cyprian? He said, I saw where we're supposed to sign up to do evangelism and that there's groups going Monday through Friday. And I said, well, yes, yes, but school hadn't started yet. And he said, oh, so I'm not too late, okay. And I said, but Cyprian, you're not enrolled in a class where that's required. And he said, no, but Jesus said, do it. And he said, I don't want to miss it. And he goes out five days a week where he can hardly walk to get to where he can share his faith. And that smile lights them up and people listen. Well, what could motivate that? Jesus said, do it. And we see a glimpse today in this passage, Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, of what that entails and how it actually is an assignment to the entire church, the collective body of Jesus Christ, of all believers of all time. This church is a localized representation of a church that is yet to be fully gathered, and that is the church that will gather someday around the throne of Christ. The uni so-called universal church does not exist today. Instead, it is growing like stones in a building, and until it's complete, there won't be such a church. Till Jesus comes and gets us, there won't be such a church. So this assignment in the interim is what we're to be busy doing, though it may be hundreds of years, and yea, even now thousands of years since his departure from earth, we see what he was leaving his church, that is us, First Baptist Church of Gordon, Texas this morning, to be busied doing. Well, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, you see a rather elongated response that Jesus has to certain questions about the climax of his ministry, the rounding out of his uh, walk, here on earth. He has not yet gone to the cross. This is a prelude to the cross, but it is him explaining all of the predicted crises, many of which are ongoing through the last 2,000 years, but we seem to be hearing in our day of them actually doing what he says here, and that is increasing. 
Read with me or follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 3, and we'll focus on verse 14. We see that Jesus describes um, these events. He says, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, which is just outside the city of Jerusalem, you can sit there on the Mount of Olives and look down on the Temple Mound area, and there's an eastern wall that's still there from ancient time frame when Jesus was alive. And there is an eastern gate when he was here on earth alive. And there was an eastern gate that he entered in on the back of a donkey just before Passover. Now someday he's going to land on that mountain, split it wide open, and he's going to enter this time through that gate riding a white stallion book of Revelation says, and he'll now have read in his eyes the fire of judgment, setting right of all that has fallen. Well, you know, the Muslims now occupy that section of Jerusalem, <clears throat> not the Mount of Olives, but the section of that wall, and they decided, they knew the prophecy of well, so they decided that uh, they would prevent that from ever happening, so they walled it up. I'm not real sure they understand who this is <laughs> and uh, that a wall isn't going to keep him out. So praise the Lord. Now that's where he is sitting and looking and speaking these words that we hear. The disciples gather there with him and they say, when will these things be? And what will be a sign of your coming and of the end of the age? People were asking then, we still ask. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Just a little tidbit here. There have been a lot of people predict the second coming. Just if you're going to do that, make sure you place it well after your lifetime could exist <laughs> because you're going to be embarrassed until it's him who comes. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Just this morning I heard on the radio that the National Security Advisor is alerting the U.S. public to the fact that the potential for war with North Korea is escalating daily. Anytime there could be such a war, even in our moment in time. See that you are not troubled. We need his help to not be troubled. For all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, earthquakes, we just saw one depicted in the video, in various places. All there are, all these are the beginning of sorrows. And the analogy here, the Greek illustrates it for us that doesn't quite come out in English, is the tribulation that occurs, all you ladies should identify with this who've had children, uh, with the increasing pains of childbirth the beginning of sorrows. That is the pain of childbirth. Praise God there's a blessing when the baby has come and all is well and you get to cuddle that little one for the first time. 
He says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. So as the world persecutes the set of believers in these end of days, it will cause the believers to turn on each other and begin to betray one another and to even plot hatred against one another. Then many false prophets, you can imagine, false prophets taking advantage of these things, will rise up and deceive many and become lawlessness, and because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures. So even though we have every reason to lose our sense of faith and the mooring of belief in Christ, in the midst of such circumstances, he says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, what we understand as salvation is not contingent on our performance of anything. Christ died, took all our sins on himself, and freely offers, just through faith alone, a right standing before God. But his meaning here will be delivered from these circumstances. So it's a physical sense of deliverance. But then here's the good news. In Matthew 24, the next verse, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. What we see here is a stated goal. What Jesus says is going to happen. We also then see a second phrase which depicts for us the strategy through which it will occur. And then finally, the result. These three elements are wrapped into this single profound verse. This verse, by the way, is kind of like a smaller cleft with a bigger ledge above it that's coming, and that's just four chapters later in Matthew chapter 28 what we call the Great Commission, but perhaps functionally too often it is the Great Omission. We see that in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, yes, even in John, there are commissioning statements where he is commissioning the church. Here it's done very succinctly prior to his death and even in the opening of the book of Acts we can find at least three settings where the Great Commission is rendered in the four Gospels, and then, of course, the, f the fourth one being on the Mount of Olives just prior to his ascension in Acts chapter 1. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us this was not a passing footnote in history. This was the culmination of Christ's work on earth. And in the 40 days after his resurrection, he is constantly repeating these commissioning statements so that there's no likelihood, hopefully and prayerfully, that the disciples of that day, at least, would ignore or miss the point, though some did still. 
why the one that doubted the greatest, Thomas, who said, look, hey, I'm, I haven't seen him yet in his resurrected form, and I'm not going to believe that that has happened until I can put my fingers in the nail prints in his hand and my hand in his scarred, uh, spear-driven side. So Jesus appears in the upper room and he invites Thomas to do those very things. But Thomas won't do it. He just stares at him, kneels before him, and says the only thing that is the right response to that kind of an experience, my Lord and my God. And church history tells us of all the disciples, he went the farthest. In the Middle Ages, when missionaries arrived in India, there was a church there already that called itself the Church of Thomas. So it seems as though the Apostle Thomas made it all the way to southwestern shore of India before he finished this life. Sounds a little bit like the endurance that Cyprian has had. But it's because of these commissioning statements from a resurrected Lord. I mean, think about it. Matthew 28, we just recite it over and over, and we don't even pause to realize that the speaker, the one who is issuing the commission, is dead. He's now alive. As the sign said a moment ago, he is risen. And so there is a dead corpse talking to you. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm going to listen. <laughs> if, if someone, I notice there's a, do you pronounce it Dottie or Doty Cemetery on the edge of town? There's a signboard there, D-O-T-Y. Anyway, how do you all pronounce it? Doty, all right, there's a Doty Cemetery. Now, if one of your loved ones who might be there got up and walked in the church next Sunday, I think it would change the focus of the service. Uh, they, a lot of people want to, hey, you haven't been around for 20 years. We want to hear what you've got to say. And he might even bear the signs of having been killed, as was or dead, and that is exactly the case with Christ his nail-scarred hands, and he's speaking to the church. And folks, though it's 2,000 years ago, those words still echo true for us today. So this gospel, that is the good news of Jesus Christ, the same gospel, let's say, for example, that Paul speaks of in Corinthians when he said this is the gospel, that Christ died, he was buried, and on the third day, he rose again. You almost have to see the three in a hyphenated relationship. Because here is the Son of God voluntarily yielding his life as a payment for all the collective sins of humanity down through all the ages. No wonder the earth turned dark when he died upon the cross and the ground shook and the veil of the temple was torn from the top down, showing God opened the barriers of access to himself. And he was buried. As dead as a doornail, buried. 
And they rolled the tomb, placed the guard. But three days later, if you've ever been to Jerusalem outside of the city at Gordon's Calvary, you often wonder, if that stone was so huge, how could the women expect to roll that thing back? Have you ever wondered that? Well, those tombs had a hole in the top. It's a little cave is what it is. And you could crawl down in there to anoint the bodies, which is what they came to do. Because the Jewish practice was after a certain number of days, they would come and anoint the body further. It was a way of preserving the body. We, we embalm today, but they were doing these wrappings with spicing. Uh, and when they got there, they found the tomb open and all the clothes folded and laid there and they were broken out of, not broken into. And then they meet him in the garden. And of course they rushed to tell the disciples who at first didn't believe them. But this very gospel of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ and all that it says to each of us regarding our salvation Folks, he's paid it all. I can't buy it. I can't work for it. I can't earn it. In my own fleshly energy, I can do none, no righteousness. There is, as Paul says in Romans, none righteous, no, not one. So all of us are condemned and in need of a Savior in terms of the judgment we oftentimes think, well, you know what, preacher, I'm, I'm not that bad. I mean, I love my wife and kiss my kids and only rarely kick the dog. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm an okay kind of Joe. And uh, problem, we compare ourselves to each other. But if you compare yourself to the righteousness of Christ, all have sinned and come short of God's glory. And the wages of that sin, what we deserve for that sin, is death. Separation from God eternally. In condemnation. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And then Paul evolves the thought till he gets to chapter 10 and he said it's with the heart that a man believes. Believes what? That Jesus is Lord. There's a whole lot packed into that simple phrase. Jesus is Lord. For we acknowledge he, him as our Lord and Savior. And whoever then believes in the heart with the mouth confesses. So in some way we confess. We, we give notice to the public around us, to people around us that we love Christ because he first loved us. So this is the gospel of the kingdom of God. And that will be preached, literally the word means heralded with great celebrity, with great proclamation. I often think of whoever the president might be at a given time of the State of the Union address that's rendered each January. And uh, there's a little guy, you never see him, but you always hear him 
when the whole joint sessions of Congress, the Supreme Court, everybody are all seated there, and of course the newscasters are trying to figure out what it means if one person is seated with a different person and whatever. But uh, there they all are, and whenever the little door opens underneath the balcony of the Senate chamber, you can hear him say, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America. And you hear the song, dun, 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 and they all stand up. By the way, that's about all I can try to sing or I'll really put you all to sleep uh, or out. And uh, so uh, you never see. But there is a great heralding of the announcement of the entry to that room of the President of the United States. Folks, this is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, far superior to any human dignitary or any human king, president, prince, or otherwise. It'll be preached in all the world, the cosmos, the total totality of creation. So this is what we're headed to. Christ predicts it will occur. Here's how he says it's going to occur. As a witness to all the nations. Two words there to pay attention to, particularly this morning. Witness. In the first century, the term, Greek term used, is martyros, from which we gain our modern English usage of the term martyr. Now, in this moment, that word did not bear with it anything other than the meaning of someone who's willing to witness or testify to truth, no matter the cost. What historically it evolved into is those who do that very thing, even at the cost of their own lives, to pay the ultimate sacrifice. And it will then go out as that kind of a witness, passionate, preaching it to all the world, and even willing to pay the ultimate price for it to be accomplished to all the ethne, all the nations or peoples. Now to Jewish ears, that was offensive because they thought they were the chosen people, only to realize that Abraham was selected for the ultimate purpose of God blessing all the nations of the earth. All the families of the earth, it says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. So that is the way it's going to happen. Now let me caution you. We cannot just get from the IMB or download somewhere on the internet a listing of unreached peoples and just go down and tick our list off. And then just stand there and say, even so, come Lord Jesus, we've done our part. Now, we don't know at all whether we have a list of nations, we don't mean the UN acknowledged countries of the world, we mean peoples of the earth. We don't know by language and culture particularly, we don't know if we even operate with the same roster of peoples that God operates with. I've been in missiological research long enough to know 
we've got all sorts of misnamed tribes and peoples. Uh, the tribal group where we worked is listed in the unreached peoples category, and we taught in the village as a seminary to the very location. So it's not classically unreached, but the, the problem is the name of the people group appears twice in the one list because the list was generated with what is called an ethnonym accidentally. They're calling you by your language you speak and they're also calling you by the tribal name. So in case it was two separate tribes, they listed them. So there's always cleanup, refreshment, uh, refinement of the current list upon which we generate strategy and attempt to work. So don't let anyone preach this or believe anyone who preaches that this is something humans can control. It is completely God's list. But by the same token, it doesn't mean we sit idly by and just wait on him to accomplish it. We're to be busy doing what he says must be complete. And he says in the last phrase, and here's the result, then the end will come. Folks, we don't know. Jesus even said, no man knows the day nor the hour of his coming. A lot of people spend a lot of time trying to take a spiritual slide rule to the text and figure that out. When Jesus himself said, no one can know. So that's in the mystery of God's own mind. But what we can and must be busy doing is preaching this gospel in all the world as a witness to all the nations. You saw a glimpse of how your collective effort toward the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is accomplishing that in Nepal. Though we don't necessarily physically go and join him, though these days we could be a part of it uh, tangibly, um, then our giving accomplishes these kinds of goals in that place, in that location. Then the question is, what demand does God make on the call on my life? Students often ask me, Dr. Idle, how do we know if we're called to be a missionary? And I usually answer that by saying, well, go read the New Testament, starting in Matthew and going all the way through, though you could add the Old Testament to it because it certainly develops it there. But read the New Testament, particularly the four Gospels and the book of Acts, and instead, ask your question a different way. How do I know I am not called into missions? Why is it we have to beckon God for a special sense of call to go do what he's commanded the church to be busy doing? So I say to students, don't ask if you're called into missions. Ask why you think you're not. And more often than not, we'll come up with a roster, a listing, 
because maybe I might have to go without much of a roof over my head. Or I might not have at least the kind of food I'm accustomed to. When we lived in Africa, the first time I was served a mess of fried termites, it was a little bit of a challenge. So you just keep in mind the old missionary prayer, Lord, if I can get it down, would you help me keep it down? (laughs) But when I saw what arduous work went into getting those termites, uh, I wasn't about to pass them up. I ate some. I didn't go back for seconds, but I did (laughs) eat some. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe, we might be captured for our faith, placed into an imprisoned circumstance, and maybe not have any shoes given to us to wear even on our feet. Folks, we may never have to face anything like that. But by the same token, we should praise God even if we do. Regardless of the cost, to see his task, not yours, not mine, not some strategic design out of Richmond where the IMB is, but the word of God says go. So we need to be busy praying. Certainly everyone can and should. You've got a prayer list in your bulletin this morning. The IMB is saying, join us in reaching the nations through prayer. Folks, the army of the Lord advances on its knees. And secondly, we need to be challenged to give. I see your goal is $1,200. I would encourage you to think of that as a a goal of the lowest level. Extend and reach well beyond that. Be a cheerful giver, not to the church per se. That's hopefully a matter of local integrity and everything that you trust and would give. But through it being extended to Richmond and from there, to the uttermost parts of the earth so that that missionary that you saw in the shadows can be there and testify to what you have accomplished through them. So our giving, I mean, our family, we've tried to covenant the last several years that we kind of evaluate how much we spend on everybody else and especially even on ourselves. And then we try to achieve the ability to match Lottie Moon offering being the same. Now think about it in those terms. How many hundreds of dollars do we give collectively to our families and to ourselves? Great blessings we have. But to what extent do we view God's purpose as equally important? As the children's message said, it's not about all those things. And then perhaps what we need to do this morning is ask you to put your own life on the altar for God. No strings attached. I see some of you are old enough to know what a check is. (laughs) 
our students at the school, they kind of scratch their head. They've heard of one. <laughs> but everything's digital and electronic today, and I actually have had students tell me they have never, ever handwritten a check. But I tell them that back in the old days, when we had to do it that way, that it was considered an invitation for identity theft and stealing out of your bank account if you signed a blank check and left the amount up to somebody got a hold of that check and just wrote it in for $5 million. Now, they might not be able to cash that, but they would try. And, you know, God is expecting us in terms of surrender of call to give him a blank check. Don't ask, well, Lord, I'll go if. Just say, Lord, I'll go. And until or unless you ever stop me, I'm going. I don't know what course other men may take, but I am going. And certainly in the meantime, we can be very busily involved in sharing the gospel in our community, throughout the state, throughout the country, and throughout this world, through all of our collective efforts together as Southern Baptists. I'm often asked, where's the most dangerous place you've ever been in the world? I've been a lot of places, and I can well remember I was in the middle of a Muslim riot in Dhaka, Bangladesh. In the central circle, traffic circle, there were 5,000 angry Muslims. I was in a taxi. I sat in front with the taxi driver missionary was in the back and all the back windows were tinted so he was kind of safer than I was my window was down and as we kind of beep beeped up into the crowd I mean right outside the door close enough I could have leaned out and touched it there were angry Muslims protesting about our second Gulf War and they had sticks with um, effigies of George Bush Jr., of uh, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, the Secretary of Defense at the time, and of Tony Blair, the Prime Minister of England. And they were burning them. So I looked over at the taxi driver, and just as bright as he could, they, they bobbed their heads just like they do in India. And he said, oh, sir, we like Americans, but we don't like George Bush. And so I said, well, I, I didn't bother to tell him I voted for him <laughs> at that moment. But, uh, uh, folks, I thought, you know, time froze for a moment. What if they saw my white face? They could have grabbed me and pulled me right through that window, and then I could have been on a fourth pole. But it dawned on me, if I'm going to die, I want to die with my boots on. By the way, I don't wear boots. They hurt my feet. But <laughs> I want to die with my spiritual boots on, doing what God has told us to do. But you know what? That's not even the most dangerous place I've ever been. The most dangerous place in the world, in your lifetime and mine, is right where you're seated. 
if we're one millimeter outside the will of God for our lives and for our church. How do we know? Well, do we give by asking God to inspire and motivate a cheerfulness to give? Or do we give, well, how much can we manage to do as a leftover for God's missions in this world? Oh, but I, I give this all the time so that I can afford for others to go. I've actually had students who went as missionaries whose parents came to see me and they were unhappy. They put their children through RAs, GAs, all the mission training in the church, and then they're surprised when God called their children and their grandchildren to the foreign field. We have three grandchildren right now that we see every four years because my daughter and her family are IMB missionaries in the Republic of Georgia. If you don't know where that is, it's nowhere near Atlanta. Okay, it's on the Black Sea, right next, it used to be part of the Soviet Union. We do, fortunately, see them on, what's it called, FaceTime? I don't do Facebook. I, got, I have a page, but I've turned it off, because it's like an electronic chain. It always jerks your head around. I let her review it, tell me what I need to know. But my daughter and her family live and work and are reaching the people of Georgia through your giving. Thank you for what you give to the Lord. So in a moment, as we stand and sing, uh, the pastor will be here at the front, Pastor Justin, and I ask him to receive you and to I just beckon you to do one of two things this morning, uh, to render a blank check, a full heart, signed over for Christ. In whatever capacity, giving, going, praying, or all of the above. Maybe all you need to do is come and kneel here at the front to rededicate that sense of direction and purpose in life. Or perhaps you might yourself need to recognize that it's with the heart a man believes. And you've been struggling with a decision to adhere to the gospel, to hearken to God's call, and you need to put your life in salvation on the altar for him today. Whatever God may be leading you to do. And hopefully we can all prayerfully commit to looking at the giving process very differently today. Let's stand as we prepare to sing. Father, we simply yield our hearts to you. Would you encourage and enhance and inspire us in our praying, our going, and even, yes, our giving. Even if it is our children who go. Or our grandchildren who go. Lord, have your way with us. Let us not live this life
looking back and viewing ourselves as an obstacle to your purposes. Let us go to your presence with a happy heart for all you've done with the one life that we have to live. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name.